0: This is Behind the Curtain at L.A. Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lauritsen. On this edition of the podcast, I'm joined once again, although very briefly, by composer David T. Little. He's going to introduce us to one of his childhood friends, the uh, retired Army major, Nick Seidel. In the course of writing his opera, Soldier Songs, David T. Little interviewed a number of current and former military servicemen and women, and he says at the top of his wish list of interviews was his friend, Major Seidel. I'll let David T. Little officially introduce us, and that will be followed by my conversation with retired Major Nick Seidel.
1: I don't remember where we actually met, but we got to be friends by uh, actually performing in musicals together. I don't know if you would want me to say that, because um, he's, <laughs> he's moved on into other things, but... Um, But yeah, we we performed together in a lot of shows in school, in high school, and um, after high school he went off to West Point and then spent 20 years in the the Army and was deployed all over. So one of the reasons he's not in in Soldier Songs is because he was deployed at the time. And we recently reconnected, Uh, Soldier Songs was done by San Diego Opera, and he's based in San Diego now, so we connected there and... um, and I'm really happy that he's going to talk with you and We have vastly different experiences Yeah. Um, with this, but I, you know, he, well, I'll let him say whatever he wants to say about <laughs> the piece, but I, yeah. you know, I was very happy that he could see it in, in San Diego, yeah. and it was really great to reconnect with him there. He's a great guy. One of the, the finest human beings I know. So... Mm.
0: First of all, thank you for your service. And uh, I just got off the phone with David Little, and he said, uh, Nick is one of the finest human beings I know. Uh, your reaction?
2: Uh, that's a pretty humbling statement coming from David. So, yeah, we go back a long time um, doing high school together, and uh, we did some theatrical performances together. Definitely uh, one of my oldest friends, and coming for him, that, that means a lot.
0: He wasn't sure that uh, that that you would be pleased that he mentioned the theatrical performances, but uh, he did mention that to me. I think he said something about a production of Oklahoma that you were in together.
2: <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I was uh, I was Curly and he was Jed, so that was that was a great time together.
0: <laughs> Do you? Uh, how's your voice these days?
2: Oh, I I, I don't think it's as, as crystal as it once used to be, but. Um, uh, i I still do enjoy it and uh, I think I've passed on the the gene to my five and a half year old son Sebastian so just put him through a theater camp this summer.
0: oh that's wonderful that's wonderful yeah I'm curious did you grow up in a military family? I did not no
2: um, my, my grandfather was uh, air Force pilot in in Korea, but as far as the military family is concerned no uh, did made the choice kind of unilaterally had a couple of. Uh, friends and acquaintances growing up and through, through high school that kind of served as, as mentors and examples to follow um, in their path towards joining the, the military, specifically the Army.
0: Mm-hmm. What is that decision like? Um, obviously, it's not something that, that would be taken lightly, but you know, I, I don't know that we talk a lot about, you know, that decision to serve and what all goes into the thought process. Um, could you share what it was like for you? Sure,
2: be glad to. So it was an interesting time because unlike some of the the cadets when I went back to to West Point to teach, uh, I remember asking them the same question. And their typical response, uh, albeit a a very good one, was uh, I had a call to serve after after Mm 9-11. Fortunately, I didn't have something quite like that. Uh, I made my decision back in the the mid-'90s while still in in high school. And to me, it, it really just came from good old-fashioned family upbringing and hearkening to the importance of, of selfless service, something that kind of a an overused and albeit maybe sometimes cliché term that we, we throw around often, but, but selfless service and, and giving, giving back and being a part of something that's greater than yourself really kind of called to me, and it was great being, being part of a team. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Can you tell me a little bit about your career then, I guess? So you, uh, you went to West Point, and, and from there, tell me sort of your trajectory.
2: Sure. So uh, r- right out of uh, West Point, I uh, went to my, my first duty station, which was Hawaii, which um, would have been nice if I got to live there, but went and immediately deployed to Afghanistan and, uh, for, for a year, and then Iraq after that, and then went back to Iraq. So a total of, of three combat deployments. Um, over a couple of duty stations that took my wife and I from Hawaii to Germany, and then uh, back to, to West Point, and then most recently where we retired out of Fort Irwin, California.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: When uh, the orders come in, mm-hmm. how much time do you have to uh, sort of think about, okay, I'm, I'm headed into a, a combat zone. Um, how do you prepare um, for that, uh, especially the, for the first time? seeing combat
2: that's a great question um, the short answer is it, it varies and it, and it depends um, but to give you a more pointed answer the earlier the deployment uh, back in, in the conflict the the less time obviously we were afforded in order to, to prepare our mindsets for something like that as as the years went on um, you had it kind of almost gotten to a rhythm so by the, by the third deployment it was it was kind of par for the course, so to speak, uh, in, in the beginning. However, even though it was, it was very sudden and uh, my, my first duty station, my guys were already deployed. I met them on ground in Afghanistan. To me, that was probably the best situation possible. I always likened it to my friends who always, who always said, well, how, how can you just go jump right into it? And I always likened it to being a teacher in a classroom without any students. It's just not any fun. And hmm. and not to say that you know, the combat was fun, but it was just a, a sense of purpose and actually being able to do our job um like we were supposed to do. And oh, by the way, definitely had four years at West Point to prepare that mindset and I know that for the most part all of all of my classmates and I were were rip or and ready to go, really trying to provide what best service we could to the cause.
0: Yeah. What what was your specific role um, in that? I guess in that first yeah. tour.
2: So I was an infantry officer. So I was the, the the cliche guy. I would think that you would see in the movies uh, the guy with a heavy rucksack on, rifle in his hand, walking down, uh, walking down the road. And we did. I was responsible for the first job for a group of uh, thirty to sometimes 40 personnel, and we would conduct uh, presence patrols in high-risk areas and provide security for the the local population. That was what we maintained on a daily basis for uh, what turned out to be a 12-month deployment. The first time, 15 months during the surge in 2007, and then again a year in 2008-9.
0: You talk about the education um, at West Point and um, the mindset of of yourself and of, uh, of your troops. It, mm-hmm. As someone who does not have that education, does not have that background, um, mm-hmm. and as someone who has not served, I don't understand. <laughs> how mm-hmm. do you end up in a, a headspace, a mental space to mm-hmm. put yourself in harm's way where you don't know what's around the next bend? How, mm-hmm. how are you ready for that?
2: All right, another another great question, and hopefully I have an equally great answer to that. And one thing that we were reminded very often um, was that we were, in our, no longer a, a conscript army. We were a total volunteer force. And that was something that we were kind of subconsciously, I think, very proud of, in hmm. that we all raised our right hand, and we all said we want to go. And it wasn't all went to join the military or the army Instead of going to jail or or worse or whatever, it was because everyone everyone's headspace was a true a true higher calling. Now, obviously, uh, 9/11 definitely increased the importance of that calling, but uh, I think it was it was very important to to be around people, not only my my academy classmates, but more specifically my my soldiers that I that I worked with. Right? These were. These were kids. I was a kid. Uh, we were all kids from from small towns in all across America, and they, they didn't know each other. All we cared about was not only doing our job, but bringing each other back home safely. And that that really was the the headspace in in trying to do our best to yes accomplish the mission and make sure we provided all the the objectives and meet the objectives that our higher headquarters had in, in place for us. But really to look out for each other. So as far as looking out what was around the next bend, there was worry, but it was all mitigated worry because we all know that we had each other's backs.
0: Mm-hmm. What do you wish civilians back home uh, who haven't served, what do you wish we understood about your experience? I'm actually get... kind
2: of humbled that getting asked a question about what do I wish? Huh. Uh, I wish... I wish they would know um, how grateful uh, we are for the the support that they have and continue to show us. And we were constantly reminded again how we are not the, the Vietnam era army. I was reminded at the academy and then throughout my entire military career. And every time we would come home, whether it was in a Texas airport or a a Seattle restaurant or whatever, it was an overwhelming, always incredibly humbling experience to have people, people thank you. And, and almost uh, embarrassingly so, right? Because uh, even though it was much appreciated, it was, we almost looked at it from the standpoint of, I appreciate your thanks and your gratitude, but it's really unnecessary. So as far as, as understanding what I wish, you know, the rest of the population would understand is how grateful we are and that um, it really goes without saying.
0: In my conversation with David Little, mm-hmm. he he talked about interviewing um, members of the military um, from across different generations, from across different conflicts around the world, mm-hmm. and one common threat—he said he wanted to interview you, but you were deployed when he was writing the piece— I, I uh, was but he said one common thread across all of his interviews seemed to be that he would be talking with someone and and he would ask them a question and uh, about their experience and they would say some form of this I haven't really talked about this with anyone Is that your experience as well and is that because people don't ask you know,
2: interestingly enough, and, and I've heard that often, too, and that typically is a common thread that I also experience. Um, interestingly enough, uh, that that is not my experience, um, and it's probably not my experience because of common threads like that, because uh, one thing that was so evidently clear throughout, uh, I, I was responsible not only for the tactical employment of, America's sons and daughters on a daily basis but what my favorite job and I think I consider my most important job was to look out for their welfare on a daily basis and that included making sure that they were able to process the things that they they experienced daily and wh- whether it was personal trauma or it was uh, life-threatening experiences or deaths of of our teammates these were all things that when typically we would compartmentalize them, and then we said, "Oh, well, we're not going to talk about them," either out of out of some machoistic uh, misplaced sense of duty or something like that. It made it a very big point to not keep that in, and I think, as, as at least from my perspective, and hopefully the the rest of the nation sees the the attention brought to the importance of the non-stigmatization of behavioral health across the armed forces uh, to first and foremost, bring down the, the reported daily suicide rate of, of 21 service members a day, um, mm. I think we've come a long way to addressing that fact in kind of a, not eliminating, but really trying to get on the other side of, I don't talk about that. Please talk to me about that. Let's, let's process and let's get through it. I, I hope that answers your question.
0: That really does. And it's really encouraging to hear that. I, you know, I I, I want to know a little bit more um, from your experience, too, just about how that shift has uh, has come about. Um, in, in your experience, where are we now versus where we were 10, 15, 20 years ago in terms of that kind of, of care for veterans? Yeah. Uh, so
2: I, I can only speak from my specific perspective obviously. Um, however I I remember even at the academy back in the in in the early two thousands about the importance of open and honest communication and then the and then the the vital importance of, of soldier health. And one of the one of the number one things that was that was was told to us, was instructed to us, was promoted throughout our ranks, was making sure that we took care of the whole soldier concept, and was really making sure that they were they were prepared to to do their their duty. Um, I I have I have firsthand been the beneficiary of some of the the services that the, the military and the army provides, and um, even though I may hear in, in the news that. There are problems with it, whether it's through the, the VA or just to specific military services. The help is out there. I know it is. I've sent people to there. I've been there myself. Um, and it's wholesome services with, with real people that really want to help. And it's very encouraging. Are, is it perfect? Nothing is. But I'm, I was and continue to be very optimistic about the outlook of the military's focus on soldier care.
0: You mentioned earlier uh, the pride that you and your fellow soldiers felt mm-hmm. being part of an all-volunteer group. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm curious about the sort of the other side of that from a civilian perspective. It appears, it feels to me like that also then provides a sense of distance or separation for people mm-hmm. who don't serve that we can, we can sort of put this this conflict sort of out of sight, out of mind, mm-hmm. because I know I'm not going to be conscripted into service, so I can just say, mm-hmm. you know, these folks over here are doing that job, mm-hmm. and so I don't have to. Is any of that sort of dynamic something that you're conscious of while you're serving, or is that something that, that you've dealt with?
2: Absolutely, and I have a a perfect example hopefully of that i used to be i used to be very upset uh, when during my first deployment i saw nba basketball i remember sitting late at night it was after a really long day and we had one channel on the armed forces network and it was broadcasting a an nba game and i thought to myself wow normal life is continuing continuing on and people there are watching in the stands, are watching a basketball game. I wonder if they think or know or even care about us. And I remember feeling very angry and frustrated about that because it didn't feel like what we were doing mattered. It was a very myopic view, uh, Come retrospectively, to, to come to think about it, uh, in that the ability for those people to be watching that game was a testament to whatever we were doing was hopefully helping and to be able to do that, to, be, to provide that, that freedom and that ability and that latitude, uh, just like when uh, President Bush or any of the other leadership uh, during or right after the attack said that the only way that the enemy wins is if we let them. And um, I experienced that with my own family. I'm the oldest of four. I have two brothers and a sister. Uh, my two brothers. For the rest of my siblings, the military was not for them, and I I always did, and I always will respect their choice uh, not to serve, Um, but I I thought about them often. I thought about uh, what what they were doing, and yes, there was a, not only for me personally, but we also reflected on that very often in the the growing civil-military divide. So it was something that we were very conscious of, and we all were also tried to kind of bridge, in a sense, of when we were back stateside to make sure that we were sending guys out to civil civil education and partnering with industry and making sure that we not only understood what civilian life was about, but vice versa.
0: What do you make of the politicization of service, of the national anthem, of the flag, of sporting events? Do you have an opinion on that?
2: I do, uh, and, and usually, usually I, I kind of uh, uh, my default is uh, from forgive the forgive the reference, but from the the movie Gladiator. I remember uh, Russell Crowe's one of his lines was, "As a soldier, I have the the ability to not to have a, a political opinion." However, um, and I know a lot of my my military and army colleagues, uh, specifically what you're referencing you know, the uh, sporting events and American flag, and so they have some very pointed and very strong views and opinions. Um, One thing that I came to realize through all my years of service and all the places that I I was was that at least what I think I learned was the true importance and the true meaning of freedom. And if freedom means, for instance, the, the First Amendment and your ability to speak freely and exercise that in any way you see fit, as long as it doesn't harm somebody else. And I have to respect that. And whether I like it or not, that's what I and the rest of my guys that I was working and fighting with, that's what we were protecting. So I try not to get bent out of shape, so to speak, uh, and things like that, but uh, respect them for what they are. And that's kind of what makes us great.
0: David Little mentioned that you were at a performance of (sighs) Soldier Songs. What did you think? Heavy. Yeah. He's very
2: happy. He prepared me though. Uh, <laughs> he said, he said uh, he showed me the he gave me the links and showed me some snippets. And my wife actually came with me for some some moral support because David uh, warned me that it was going to be uh, heavy not only with the, the the loud noises and the sound effects and whatnot, but really just the subject material and. Um, but it, it, was, it was very, I said heavy, but I'll also say powerful. Um, I left with that with a, a lot of meaningful and active reflection. And that's why I've, I've also reached out to David to uh, invite members of my cohort. I'm actually going, uh, currently going to USC for an executive MBA in a specific military cohort of, of 88 folks. And um, I'm hoping to bring majority of those classmates with me to go and, and see that that production in a hope that it serves as a medium or as a vessel to kind of process what they've been through personally through their experiences.
0: Mm -hmm. What is the role of music when you're deployed? How do different folks use music?
2: Uh, Yeah. Um, So most of my guys, it was angry rock or rap and it was a way to let out frustration, anger. It was a venting modality. Uh, whether it was flaring in the truck to motivate you on a really long patrol or it was in the gym trying to get you through another set so you are fit and healthy to go on another day. For me, it was a little different, although I did use a lot of that. I, um, as, as David will know, um, I have a penchant for, for classical music, and I, I, I've listened to your show uh, many times in KUSC since I've been here on the West Coast.
0: But, oh, wonderful. Um,
2: do, do, people always tease me for it, being a, a combat arms infantry guy. It's not really uh, something that is is aspired to, but uh, yeah, classical music was literally my jam and that was kind of uh, my centering space. And and whenever I had the need to, to center myself or, or, or calm down or just focus, right. Or, or appreciate what was around me. It was always, it was always there. So that, that was, that was my musical experience. And I attribute that all to my, my mother. So we grew up in Manhattan and, was a big uh, WQXR fan.
0: (laughs) Excellent. Who are your favorite composers? What were some of the pieces you were listening to?
2: Yeah, um, pretty much, I guess, I guess all the greats uh, specifically just out of my Russian background, Tchaikovsky was always a a nice one just for his, his powerful pieces and and moving, moving pieces. I mean, most, most famously, I guess the 1812 Overture, that'd be a really, really neat uh, thing to listen to before going out. But but, but otherwise, really, uh, um, I, I'd love to, to calm down. Whether they were the, the sonatas or just some some nice chamber music, um, really, it didn't matter who it was as long as it was, was the right feel.
0: Excellent. Again, I want to thank you for your time. And just as we as we wrap up, sure. the LA Opera has made uh, a number of tickets available to this production. Um, as I understand it, several hundred tickets are available. Um, at no cost to veterans. How does that make you feel, knowing that the company is um, making a concerted effort to invite veterans into um, their productions? And it's not just for this piece because it's soldier songs. They, they have a whole program and have multiple performances throughout the year. Um, how, does, how does that strike you from an institutional standpoint?
2: So I think it's a testament to the L.A. Opera's commitment, an ongoing commitment, to
0: continuing the
2: outreach to the veteran community. So it's obviously 2018. We've been in constant conflict since 2001. That's a very long time to be concerned about anything, let alone a specific population. And what we were talking about before, um, I'm never surprised, but I'm still continually amazed by the outpouring of support, regardless of its source. But I guess particularly uh, with organizations like the LA Opera, which I wouldn't immediately place with, with vet, veteran outreach. And I think that's a very interesting and refreshing aspect, uh, because typically it would be baseball games or football tickets or, or something like that. And, and that's, that's all well and good. But to be able to expand the aperture for not only the, the veteran, the service member, I think that's a really powerful statement.
0: Nick Seidel is a retired Army major who served three tours of duty in active combat, one in Afghanistan and two in Iraq. Major Seidel is a childhood friend of the composer David T. Little, whose opera Soldier Songs, which explores some of the emotional and psychological effects of military conflict, will be presented by Beth Morrison Projects at LA Opera on October 13th at 8.30 p.m. at the Ford Theaters. A number of tickets for this special event have been reserved for veterans and their families. There are also tickets available to the general public, which you can purchase at laopera.org. This is Behind the Curtain at LA Opera. I'm your host, Brian Laurentsen. If you've enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.